Forward Guidance is brought to you by Van Eck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about a Van Eck ETF later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. It's the morning of the 24th of January, and I'm joined by Chris Whalen, uh, banking expert and founder of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, great to see you. Hey, good to see you. Nice, nice to be here. Chris, what's your current outlook on the state of the banking system in the U.S.? Well, we just did a piece saying that the banks are slow walking commercial problems. And that's as it's always been. Banks have the capacity to manage credit in a way that funds cannot. And why? Because they have liquidity. So they can decide to keep certain situations alive. And in other cases, they'll liquidate them and foreclose. So what you're seeing with Obviously, office buildings, we all hear about that, but with other types of commercial property as well, warehouses, surprisingly, other types of commercial things like malls that we all know about, right? But in parts of the country that would surprise you, like Texas or Alabama, the Southeast is supposed to be you know, growth, right? But there are winners and losers in all of these markets. And as you build new, the old stuff goes down in value. It's just a basic rule of the game. And then in the legacy cities, you know, it's a totally different situation. The use case changes due to COVID have rendered a lot of these buildings worth half of what they were before 2019. And I think people were already gravitating in that direction of changing lifestyle, changing work patterns because they could. The irony of, you know, the industry I work with a lot mortgages is that they could. They could send all of these people home while they were expanding headcount, by the way, 50%. In 2020-21. Extraordinary. They didn't see some of these new employees <laughs> for like a year. But the point is, is that now that these use cases have changed for buildings, the value changes. You know, if the building's half empty and it can still pay its bills, okay. But that building has a net income that's far lower than it used to be. And by the way, investors have doubled their expectations for returns on assets like these. Cap rates have gone from three and four to eight. So that makes the hurdle even higher. If you're the quote unquote owner of the building and you're coming up on the seven year anniversary of your mortgage and the banker looks at you and says, hey, Paul, you got to put money in if you want to keep this thing. So that's kind of where the industry is right now. There's a lot of noise. If you follow the uh, commercial real estate press, like the real deal, which I really recommend. You can see what's going on, but it will take time for the banks to actually recognize and disclose these losses to investors. And that's why the analyst community really needs, I think, to start asking some questions in coming quarters. So there was no discussion for U.S. Bank on commercial real estate, which I thought was cute. I'm not worried about them. I know they can manage credit, but there are other banks out there that have serious problems. And remember, they're already working off of a balance sheet that's got unrealized losses because of the Fed. So the Fed hands the bankers a liquidity problem. It's a little better now because rates have rallied. But still, they're down 5%, 10% on deposits. Those deposits are gone. And, you know, that's when banks fail, Paul. So that's kind of where the industry is. We were down in the fourth quarter sequentially on net income, a little bit of a credit build by some of the industry. And you'll see that slowly increase. I think they are getting ready for a credit event, whether it's just commercial. And I, I compare this to Texas in the 1970s, except it's commercial real estate in, in downtown uh, locations. And then, you know, the consumer will see. But it's not there yet. 
It's not there yet. So commercial real estate, we've been seeing headlines for a long time about oh, the building. Yeah. The building is you know not worth as much. It's not it's not you know uh, worth as much as we thought it was. It's not mm-hmm. getting the cash flow. We're handing it back to the bank, but we haven't seen that in the actual bank disclosures. The bank isn't considering it a, a loss. They're not foreclosing, especially if there's a bankruptcy involved. They can easily say, "Well, it's before the courts." I can tick off a number of situations like this where we know the bank is going to take a loss, but they haven't reported it yet. And, you know, again, this is the auditor, partly the regulators, partly, but it's also, they say, well, I may get a recovery, even if they know they won't. You know, that situation we've written about with Texas Capital Bank, they're in the midst of a litigation with Ginny May. Are they going to win the litigation with Ginny May? I don't think so. So eventually, they are going to tell us about the failure of this reverse mortgage lender that occurred two years ago. So that's an example. You know, let me give you another example. Let's say a bank wipes out the equity in an office building in downtown Cincinnati. The bank now owns that office building at 50 cents on the dollar for the original value. They then have to decide what to do with it. Can they sell it easily? Is it cash flowing now? Can they just sit on it? So let's say the building is making enough money to pay its expenses. They write it down. They put it on the special list for the regulators, right? But they keep it. They just run it. And they can do this for years. So banks have the ability to do that, whereas funds and others who want to get in the credit, you've seen those headlines, not so much. Because unless they have a big pot of cash behind them, a big fund or a bank, it's hard to finance workout. And that's why, you know, a lot of our my friends in the industry would tell you if you're above 50 LTV on a commercial property, you're not secure because they assume that the top 50% is aspirational, right? Yeah, I, uh, I 50% it is where it is. What do you say? But look, you know, I use Cincinnati. Cincinnati, you know, is fine, except downtown is empty. But downtown Dallas is empty, too. So the use case for all of these assets has changed. And it's going to be a real challenge for these uh, communities and these regions of the country to essentially go in and restructure these assets for other purposes. So a a very large majority of regional bank balance sheets of their loans is commercial commercial real estate loans. How bad do you think this is going to get? And you know how systemic do you think this could be? Is it just going to be one or two banks has some issues, or do you think you know a, a, a host of banks could have some serious, you know, very serious issues? If you compare this to the oil patch in the 1970s, when we had a drop in oil prices and there was a large scale uh, series of insolvencies and restructuring, which kind of led us to the SNL crisis, by the way, a decade later, I think it's of that scale and that duration. So it could be most of this decade, we're working out commercial real estate, and you're going to have losses from these workouts flowing through the income statements of banks. That's going to reduce earnings. It's not going to be consistent, though. Commercial real estate is is profoundly idiosyncratic because each asset has its own story. All of these assets ultimately have to be looked at individually. I remember years ago when I was at Kroll Bond Ratings and I asked Eric Thompson, the head of the asset-backed security ratings team there, that he's a very, very astute analyst. And he said, Chris, you can't compare cohorts. You can't even compare parts of years because in the CMBS market, which is where we securitize and sell interests and commercial loans to investors. Every cohort is different. You could have 10 loans in one pool and 25 loans in another pool of different sizes, different locations. 
So I think it's going to take time, is, is what I'm describing to you. I think the regulators are going to help the banks to the extent they can. But remember, the banks that already had a big unrealized loss on their treasuries and their mortgage securities are going to be at a disadvantage here. So you look for those. And I think those are you know candidates either for being resolved by the FDIC or sold. You know, when FDIC sees a bank is running out of cash and has assets that they can't sell because they'll take a loss, they'll start marketing the institution to other banks. They, they do that routinely. So. And Chris, what does it say about the banking system where we're, we're, seeing, we're starting to see the cracks form in, in commercial real estate? Maybe it's just office. Oh, maybe a few multifamily. But there's so many very, very solid macroeconomic data that I could throw at you, you know, a very close to record low unemployment rate, falling inflation, you know, consumer spending rising very, very rapidly, although the rate of growth is going down, but it's going down from very low levels. You know, multifamily apartment buildings are, you know, like, you know, 98% full. How is it that there could be a problem in, in an asset class where 98% of the building is full? Is it just have to do with rising rates? No, it has to do with COVID first and foremost. Some of the owners of these properties went without income for two years. And you didn't see members of Congress wringing their hands about helping landlords. They were spending all their time pandering to consumers. So you now have a weaker owner for the building. Interest rates go up. Obviously, financing rates for mortgages go up. You sit down with your banker, as we said before, and they say, well, you know, Jack, the building's worth 10% less based on our analysis of the financials. You had to make some concessions to some of your tenants to keep them in the building, right? This is what we need from you in order to roll the mortgage at a higher rate, by the way. Because the regulators are standing behind the bank or saying, eh, 50% equity. That's what we got to see. So those are the conversations that are being had all over the country right now by banks, by REITs, which are big funds set up to own real estate. And I think, you know, we just did a piece on the, the REIT market. The original mortgage holders in the REIT world are becoming the equity holders because the equity is gone. Hello? So, you know, that kind of process takes time. If there's litigation, if there's bankruptcy involved, it can take years. And that's why, you know, this is going to be a slow motion train wreck. There's been some great academic pieces that we've cited recently in the blog. And I think it's obvious, but nobody wants to talk about this because it doesn't involve consumers. Mm-hmm. As long as it doesn't involve consumers, the politicians don't care. If the numbers get big enough, though, they'll, they'll care. So we started off on a, a negative note, commercial real mm. estate, but there are some you know, rays of, of sunshine. Maybe one of them <laughs> is, the, is the consumer, basically all credit except for commercial real estate. Uh, does that does that look how does that look to you? It's normalized back to pre-COVID levels, credit card defaults, for example. People keep getting hyperbolic because the utilization of credit cards has gone up. Okay. But the banks have a dollar and a half out there in unused credit for every dollar of currently drawn credit cards. They've shown no inclination to pull back, by the way. That's your first sign that they're worried, is if they start pulling in unused credit lines. And, and reducing their exposure, then you worry. And they're still making money on the marginal. Yeah. yeah right? Oh, at these default rates? Sure. Yeah. This is what keeps City uh, alive and Capital One. All the rest of them are making very good money, even given interest rates today. So 
you know, I, I would tell you the mortgages, bank-owned mortgages are almost negative defaults right now on a net basis. And again, that's because home prices are so high. It would almost be impossible for a bank to lose money on a loan unless there's something else in that situation that is causing them expense because they can sell the house. That's the uh, reality. And I think home prices, by the way, will continue to stay pretty strong, especially the bottom half of the distribution below $300,000, $350,000. It's definitely not going to weaken anytime soon. You don't think, wait, what's not going to weaken? The consumer credit situation? No, home prices. Oh, home prices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, the the default situation we thought we were going to have with COVID never materialized. The industry did absolutely heroic work helping people for no compensation, by the way. But they did it. They made a lot of new loans. They made money on the loans. And uh, it all worked out fine. But I think that there is a concern that low-income households are right now taking a shellacking in the credit markets in terms of default rates. You know, if you look at the bottom 20% of FHA loans, they're up in the mid-teens. If you look at the big servicers that handle a lot of delinquency, their delinquency rates are, are, are well above the average. So what we're worried about is, will that become a more generalized recession? Are we going to see consumer defaults go up generally? all banks. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm a little worried about volatility here, Jack, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, we could get a surprise and see defaults go up 40% in a single quarter, simply because that quality, that volatility seems to be the factor that we've taken out of COVID. You know, Andy Hsu, the head of the, the control of the currency, had a piece about liquidity last week. And he was talking about what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Half the deposits walked out the door in a day. So, you know, it's hard for a bank to survive when they're facing that kind of change with no warning, by the way. It just kind of happened because people have cell phones. Chris, what does it say that we're having these issues as the unemployment rate is so low? So, yes, credit card delinquencies are, you know, 4%. And that is a that is a you know, average level. Uh, it is higher than any time since 2011, but it's also lower than any time from 1994 to 2011. So it's a roughly average level, but it's coming up from 2%. So it's doubled, but it's doubled from 2% to 4%. It's still not high. But is that high given where the unemployment rate is at, at 3.7%? What if the unemployment rate went to 6%? I mean, aren't, aren't delinquencies pretty high for how low the unemployment rate is? Yes, but I think the debate among economists is the quality of that unemployment number. In other words, what does it tell us? Is this an economy that's roaring along and has no concerns? Or is it an economy under stress where everybody who can is finding some employment because they have no choice, right? I think there's aspects of both because there are certainly parts of the economy that are still very strong. But, you know, if you look at the housing sector with interest rates going up, They've been shedding thousands of jobs a month. And these are people who have to go find something else to do. Realtors, Mm -hmm. volumes come down, same thing. You're seeing all kinds of creative financing to try and work around this. You're seeing lenders actually guarantee people lower rates for a couple of years on a mortgage. So the industry is trying their best to work around this. But the thing I would say is, you know, again, the Fed's going to drop short-term rates at some point. But will long-term rates, a 10-year on out, ever really come in? Or is the fact that Janet Yellen's got to go out and raise a trillion dollars every quarter basically going to keep interest rates outside of that short-term band elevated compared to where they've been? 
That's an interesting question because ultimately the banks and the non-banks fund credit cards and other types of consumer loans off of that part of the curve. They, they have to sell bonds. And that could over time have an impact on that market because it'll, it'll cut returns. For guidance is brought to you by Van Eck. The Van Eck Morningstar Wide Moat ETF, ticker MOAT, has outperformed the S&P 500 for over a decade. How? Moat strives to achieve a simple but challenging task. Buy quality stocks when they're undervalued and sell them when they're overvalued. Visit vanek.com slash moatfg to learn more. That's vanek.com slash moatfg. Now the disclosures. All investing is subject to risk, including the possible loss of money you invest. Visit vanek.com to carefully read a prospectus before investing. The Vanek Morningstar Wide Moat ETF is distributed by Vanek Securities Corporation, a wholly owned subsidiary of Vanek Associates Corporation. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Janet Yellen, Treasury uh, Secretary, and of course, we'll, we'll talk about the Treasury and the, the Fed in, in a minute. But mm. just on the point of, of interest rates, Chris, you were at the Vanguard last year and even in, in 2022, even in 2021, that uh, an interest rate shock to the front end of the yield curve would not necessarily be good for banks. In, in some cases, it would be very bad for banks because the deposit costs, what they pay for money, would rise more than loan yields, what they earn on their money, mm. and that the rise in interest would also you know, cause an instantaneous impairment to the securities and loans that they hold on their, on, on their books, regardless of whether or not they have to realize uh, um, those loans, whether they're held to maturity and, and available for sale. So that definitely was an issue in the spring and summer of last year, and mm. interest rates you know, peaked into late October. But we've had a, as you referred to earlier, a you know bull market in in rates. The the ten year uh, dropped from five percent to to four percent, a truly uh, shocking move. And the front end of the yield curve is pricing in that the, the Fed will cut rates, which will yes. lower bank deposit costs. So you know, you were very worried about this interest rate shock to bank balance sheets. How, what is your thinking on it now, now that rates are materially lower all across the curve, except for, you know, the overnight rate? Well, when we started the adjustment process in 2021, you know, interest rates were very low. So even though the percentage change every quarter was quite dramatic, banks were still making their spread. If you looked at what they were earning on their assets versus their cost of funds. Now, what you've seen is that the change in the price of deposits and the cost of funds for banks has slowed, but so has the increase in yields. And as you pointed out, we've had an amazing month in January. We saw record bond issuance in Europe, saw a very strong market in the U.S. I think partly because there's a lot of cash on the sidelines, and they looked at these yields, Jack, and they said, well, you know, I may not see this again if the Fed starts cutting rates, right? But at the same time, you know, the banks certainly have managed this process. I just, I, I think that you've got to realize is that we could see bank income continue to fall for a couple of more quarters. And if the Fed starts pushing interest rates down, I don't think deposit costs are going to fall as much as yields. So we could be kind of in the reverse situation to where we were in 21. And what that means is, you know, full-blown financial repression and bank shareholders are really going to take it on their chin. I don't think the street fully appreciates this because they say, well, you know, falling rates are good for banks. Well, only if deposit costs fall. What I saw in the earnings, Jack, that was very interesting, U.S. Bank and a number of other lenders, what are they doing? They're issuing more debt. They're trying to reduce their dependence on consumer deposits, and they want to have more five- and seven-year debt. 
on their balance sheets, which is good, by the way. But they're going to have to pay for that. If the long end of the curve doesn't follow the short end down, and I think that's very likely, then banks are going to end up having to pay for that certainty of having term debt on their balance sheets. Issuing a, a, a five-year corporate bond from your bank holding company to buy a Ginny May mortgage-backed security, you, you probably, you know, it's not a no. surprise. You can't, you can't make that work. Well, as we said in our comment letter on Basel, they need to raise the risk weight on mortgage-backed securities because, you know, it's like the old joke about what do we do if the king is an idiot? Well, if you have a bank that doesn't understand duration, and that was the case with Silicon Valley Bank, then you've got to really keep an eye on them and make sure that they don't buy a large chunk of mortgage-backed securities when the Fed is moving interest rates around a lot. That is a recipe for disaster. If the bankers know mortgages, if they understand the quality of the assets and how you manage them, great. Then you should allow them to engage in that business without penalty. But they have to come to the regulators, I think, and prove that they're not idiots. That, to me, would be the, the key test. Because like, yeah, these are federally insured depositories. I, I think we should make people demonstrate that they understand risk management. So, for example, I wanted the regulators to give mortgage servicing assets lower capital treatment if the bankers know what they're doing, right? I think that's fair. Yeah, it's just, it's just tough to, to establish an objective mechanism for- Oh, no, it's not. Know. I'll volunteer. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like we, it, when friends of mine have worked for the receivers at the FDIC, first question they ask you is, do you understand your ability to re- reject contracts? That's the key question, so. Sorry to interrupt. Just want to tell you about BlockWorks' upcoming crypto symposium in London, the Digital Asset Summit, which is running from March 18th to March 20th. Everyone in crypto is going to be there, not just the experts and policymakers, but the real industry leaders writing the checks. Over $800 billion in assets is going to be represented. Anyone who's anyone in crypto is going to be there. So if you're into crypto and you haven't bought your ticket yet, the time is now to get your ticket. I would not wait any longer. We've got some exciting guests on the macro side too. Julian Brigden, Michael Howell. And yes, I can confirm at last the rumors are true. Joseph Wang, the Fed guy himself, is going to be there too. I'll be hosting a panel with these macro heavyweights that you don't want to miss. So be there or be square. Click the link in the description and use code FG10 to get 10% off. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So if rising rates, I should say not just rising, soaring rates of 2022 and 2023 were bad for banks, why would falling rates this year not be good for banks? In other words, why do you think that if an interest rate shock upwards caused deposit costs to spike, why won't short-term rates falling cause deposit yields to fall? Because banks are in an interesting position vis-a-vis consumers. There's been a drop in non-interest-bearing deposits, business deposits, escrows, things like that. Why? Because after 2020-21, as people saw half a trillion dollars worth of banks fail, it scared the hell out of people. And this has caused them to change their cash management practices. So banks today have to work much harder to keep their deposits and they have to pay for them. They're in a very competitive position. This isn't like 2018-19 when banks weren't paying anything for deposits and people didn't feel like they had a choice. They have a choice now, very definitely. They can buy T-bills, they can go into money market funds. So all of the advantage that banks had during that period of quantitative easing when the Fed pushed rates down to nothing is gone. And I think the change in consumer behavior, you know, consumers are very, very sharp. In fact, they really 
in, in a weird way, they are very risk averse and they are not averse to move at all. They have, they have smartphones in mm-hmm. their hand. And it's that's easier. what comes. So, yeah, but it enables the movement of funds in a day or two days. You know, we're going to go to T plus one. <laughs> I think that scares the regulators because, you know, the idea of instant cash transfers for large transactions, stuff that, you know, heretofore has not been available for that kind of overnight, you know, Zelle or PayPal or something like that, that could create instability in the system. It creates volatility, certainly. What do you think would be better for the banking system? The Federal Reserve doesn't cut interest rates at all this year. They cut three times, so 75 basis points of, of cuts, which they indicated that they would on the dot plot. Again, it's not, a, it's not an indication, it's a forecast. Or what the market is pricing, which is about six cuts. Yeah, I think the market's wrong. Listen, what the markets definitely want, what bankers want and they've asked for, and what many other people in the financial sector have asked for is less volatility. I think the street has the Fed wrong. I think that the first thing the Fed is going to do is and quantitative tightening, the shrinkage of the balance sheet. And that will essentially mean the Fed's going to reinvest all of the payoffs that they're getting on all those T-bills that they own and the other securities too. Um, And that will kind of put a floor, if you will, under the markets in terms of liquidity, which is where the the Fed is most worried right now. But they don't have to cut short-term rates for quarters. Honestly, this economy is performing so well. uh, And even though there's pain in the financial markets, we would like to see relieved, obviously. um, It's by no means the case that we can't issue bonds. Look at the volumes we've had this quarter so mm-hmm. far. So I think the markets are functioning. They're certainly feeling pain in terms of you know, medium-term credit loss on the commercial side, not on the consumer side. So until you start to see the consumer really hurting, there's no imperative for the Fed to act. You know? Just reinvesting the runoff from the Fed's portfolio is a significant concession to the markets, and they should interpret it that way. But I think, you know, everybody forgets that the balance sheet is now equally in the mix, along with the target for Fed funds when it comes to monetary policy. And why? Because of the deficit. You saw Joe Manchin's comments about the deficit this morning on The Wire, right? It's pretty obvious that we're heading to a fiscal crisis, and yet nobody in Washington wants to talk about this at all. In fact, hey, you know, Donald Trump wants to spend more money, I'm sure, with he. When he beats Joe Biden, there's this air of unreality in American politics today that we can somehow pretend to ignore the Treasury situation and just say, well, it's fine. Uh, I think some members of Congress are getting a little nervous about that. So what do you think about the Federal Reserve officials, board members' comments that falling inflation is going to allow the Federal Reserve to cut rates in 2024? And we saw that in the dot plot. And I've, even the most, some of the most hawkish Fed members have you know, said, yeah, it's looking like it's time to, to cut rates. I'm paraphrasing, in 2024. Well, you're not going to do a profiles in courage on this group because you know, none of the members of the Fed board have the political sand and the, the, the character really to push back on the uh, bull market you know, chorus and the equity markets particularly. I think... You know, to me, Powell is going to move very slowly because he does not want to have people say you move too quickly. And a couple of the other key members of the committee have said as much. So I think they're going to 
you know, try and get the public message right. They should say less, Jack. You know, I, I'm, I'm appalled by the Fed and the degree to which they over-communicate. They should express the committee's consensus, and that's it. But unfortunately, this is the bed that they've made. They've got to lay in it, you know? It's a media circus every month. So when you say the Fed Reserve moves slowly, do you think that means when they cut, they'll do 25 basis points, pause, 25 basis point cut, pause? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. See, again, you know, if I start reinvesting the runoff from the portfolio, that's worth half a point or more right there. So, it, you know, in terms of the model, the Fed is all of a sudden going to see a big shift in what the model is telling them. And on that basis, they would have to ignore their model to cut rates because the economy is still strong. I think Powell wants to see at least 2%, if not lower inflation for a period of months. He's not looking for one month. So again, you know, the, the, the economy peaked in terms of funding costs last October. That's when we hit 8% mortgages, second week of October. We've been down since then. We've mm -hmm. already had half a point of market rally. If we're reinvesting the portfolio, what else do I need to do if I'm really following the data? And the answer is nothing. So I, I think there's a lot of people in the equity markets who, you know, for a lot of reasons, are desperate to see a rate cut. Look at people who've been in financials. They had a little rally, but it's not like they've recovered what they've lost. Not at all. In fact, as a good friend of mine said, you know, if I had invested a year ago and gone away and then come back, last week, basically I didn't move. And, and that I think is the endemic problem that the, uh, the equity community is facing. They're so dependent on volatility from the FOMC that in, if the Fed were to just say, no, we're good. We're not gonna cut rates this year. We've reinvested the uh, proceeds from the portfolio. Liquidity is good, we're happy. You know, ima imagine that. Could you, can you imagine the stories you would be doing? Yeah, I, I can. So if liquidity is good, what would the uh, incentive be for the Federal Reserve to stop quantitative tightening to taper and then uh, continue to, to reinvest the proceeds? I think they're going to do, they're, they're going to do that in a couple of months. Mm -hmm. you, you see, they're, they are down to the points, like $3 trillion, a little more than $3 trillion of the current balance sheet is the reserve number that they're targeting is sufficient to avoid another blow up like December 2018 or the two events that occurred in 2019. That's when we just didn't have enough cash. You know, the irony of ironies is, is that you could have low interest rates and no liquidity. And that's simply because certain parties in the market, particularly JP Morgan, have so much of the net liquidity inside their walls that if they decide not to deploy it, it becomes a problem for the rest of the market. And so the Fed has to gauge that and they also have to gauge the ins and outs of the Treasury general account, because remember, they keep all that cash. When tax payments are made, all of a sudden, all the liquidity disappears. So the Fed has to be ready for that, and they have to have more liquidity on the table so that when those payments are made, and they're quite large, they don't have a problem. In fact, some of the liquidity problems in the past five years have occurred right after a tax payment. So, the, But the deficit, the payments by Treasury, these... Numbers are so big that they're dwarfing the markets and they're pushing around the markets. 
It's called crowding out, by the way. We're going to rehabilitate that concept in the economic profession. Yeah, MMT has challenged that that concept, but you you want to to, to rehabilitate. Well, I think it's in our face. We can ignore it if we want to. But when Treasury's operations are so large that the you know Fed has to include them as part of monetary policy, that tells you what you need to know. So you think uh, quantitative tightening will end before the first rate cut? That's fair to say. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think by June. Just watch Lori Logan. She's saying this in her speeches. She's out signaling. They don't want another mistake, Jack. The last thing they need is to have another money market problem that they don't expect that surprises the equity markets. And then, you know, Mr. Powell's out of a job. I think, you know, those things would follow. So the Fed is really, 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 really focused on avoiding another misstep when it comes to managing liquidity. And part of their problem is they, the model they use is a percent of GDP, believe it or not. I don't see much relationship between GDP and real liquidity. That is, say, cash available liquidity in the market today. Are you referring to lowest comfortable level of reserves? That's right. Yeah. Isn't that a great acronym? I love that acronym. <laughs> but it's just part of the imprecision of the monetary policy apparatus that they have to come up with acronyms like that. Let me tell you what comfortable is. Comfortable means that the little broker dealers I work with don't have to go hat in hand to the Fed because JP Morgan slammed their door shut. That's comfortable. And there's no way to predict that. There's no way to monitor for that, really, Jack. You know, liquidity is like herding cats. You really cannot put a number on it. So there's no way to model it, but people have modeled it. And we're close to the modeled value of the lowest comfortable level. And, and that's why you think they'll stop. QD. Yeah, look, you, you may have noticed that the Fed has been banging the drum for banks to use the discount window in times of liquidity stress. Unfortunately, that's not going to work. But what the Fed should do is make sure that both of their facilities, the standing repo facility and the reverse repo facility, are in the markets every day, trading, providing credit, taking cash, whatever it is, so they know what's going on, and so that they're not going to be surprised. The discount window is like when you go into the church for confession after 10 years. You know, It's not a place anybody wants to be, and if the other members of the congregation in the banking market see you at the discount window, they're going to assume you're dead. Uh, a good friend of mine at one of the reserve banks that has objected to the board's focus on discount window lending said to me, Chris, when we see a bank at the discount window, we call the FDIC, you know, case closed. So I think the Fed needs to be more involved in the market. They need to trade the market every day. And the way you do this is with the standing repo facility. Because, you know, if you have collateral, come on in, right? They have to be close to the price where the market is. They've, they have to. They should be a little behind. But if the market pulls back, they should be able to step up. It's kind of like Fannie and Freddie in the old days. If the markets got weak, they would step up and buy loans. So that's really what you want the government to do. But don't tell people to go to the discount. That's, that's not going to work. And they are telling people to go to the discount window. They want In a regular operation, they say, Chris, you know, the confession booth, it's not just for people who haven't been in 10 years. We want JP Morgan in there every Sunday. And so it's regular. Oh. So there is no stigma. But there's no reason to. The pricing is wrong. You're, you're telling me you want me to come in and lose money to prove that I have liquidity? That's a really bad idea. You see, if you have eligible collateral, you should be able to go into the private markets and raise cash. That's what the repo market is for. Behind that should be the Fed and their repo facility. 
And if for some reason people don't want to take the risk of doing business with Jack today and you have collateral, fine. You could also go to the home loan banks, by the way, if you have eligible collateral. So we have to look at how the markets function and where we need help. And just the Fed saying, well, come in and use the discount window. We want you to fill out all these forms. No, that's not going to work. Nobody wants to go to the discount window. It's like bad. Right. And, but there is a Sandy Repo facility now. Yes. And, yeah. And that's where they should focus their rhetoric and their education efforts. Make that real, okay, to the extent we need to have it. I'll give you an example from my old days. I used to trade bunts on the floor of the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. And basically, it was a private market. But the Bundesbank had their own booth in the front. And the guy from the Bundesbank would sit there talking on the phone. And if he got up and stood up and went into the pit, he could buy and sell anytime he wanted to. That was quite effective. People kept their eye on the Bundesbank man. And if they needed to provide liquidity, they could. They were right there on the floor of the exchange. So that's kind of, in a visual sense, what the Fed ought to do, too, with the money markets. they got to be there every day. It's not special. It's got to become part of the operations of the market. And that rate that they have, Jack, has got to be just a little bit off where the private market is. Not five and a half percent. That's not going to work. Why mm -hmm. should I do that trade? <laughs> you know. And so, so you think the the repo rate should be lowered? The, the Federal Reserve does just a little bit. I, I think the discount price. window pricing just doesn't fit today's market. They have to think differently about it. The problem, of course, is that the discount rate is also a policy rate for monetary policy. Yes, we have to separate the two. So, for example, if you're going to target Fed funds, fine. But the you know the the way that they priced the PTAP, remember, they, they said it was swaps plus 10 basis points. Mm -hmm. That's the way they ought to price the discount window. It should be a little bit punitive, but yeah. still close enough to the rest of the market that I don't look stupid if I'm using it, right? <laughs> right, but I think part of the reason the, the bank term funding program was so advantageous is you had an inverted yield curve. So sure. you could fund yourself a year out at lower than the cost that it would cost today. And if interest rates decline more, you could refinance, although the bankers don't like it when you use that word. And if you know interest rates went up, you could just hold it. So you had basically the the, the optionality that that you know a mortgage yeah, holder compared has. To, listen, compared to the money that the banks have lost because of the volatility caused by monetary policy, the few coins that they throw into the tin cup in terms of that interest rate arbitrage between the PTAP, the you know, the bank funding and the Fed funds rate, yeah. who cares? You know, it's part of the idiot politics in this country that we could even make a fuss over something like that. How, how do people think the budget deficit is going to be funded? It's going to be funded with very low interest rates. It's going to be like World War II when the Fed kept interest rates stable throughout the war. All of the Treasury's bonds were kept at par. That was the deal. So they'll do the same thing in this country, you know, 100 years later. You know, on a medium term outlook or a longer term outlook, you do think interest rates will be low. Well, yeah. Yeah, the front will be low because Treasury is going to continue to fund there, even though they should be funding more on a term basis, but they can't because of the pricing. So, yes, I think you'll see short-term rates fall, and I think you'll see the yield curve normalize so that everything from sevens on out is going to be higher. Imagine that. See, and, and we won't have much help for the mortgage market here because we, you know, we sell mortgages today against kind of the 10 to 12-year portion of the curve. And it could be that it's not going to come in. But, you know, imagine a scenario like that. And that's a normal yield curve, Jack. 
Mm -hmm. You can see Fed funds down at four and tens out at five and a half to six. Imagine that. I don't think anybody on Wall Street would be very happy about that. No. How has the new yield curve affected the small bank model and the broker-dealer model of originate and sell? You originate the, the, the mortgage, and then you sell it at a premium to you, you know someone who's going to structure it together. That business model was very, very bad in 2022 when you had the interest rate shock. Is it a little better now? Well, that's mostly a non-bank market today. The banks that are still making mortgage loans are making primarily conventionals. If you look at the top 10, we just wrote about this for U.S. Bank. Jamie Dimon's number six, and U.S. Bank is number eight. The rest of them are non-banks, led by PennyMac. So, you know, I think the short-term rates are a big pain point for the non-banks, because that's how they fund their production. They fund it off 30-day money. The long end is where you price a, a mortgage-backed security when you sell the loan into the bond market long-term, right? So that's the part that's going to be a little problematic because that's where we set mortgage rates. The spread between that security, you know, to get three quarters of a point to a point above that, is where a consumer gets a mortgage. And if the long end stays elevated, I think inevitably that's going to, you know, have an impact on volumes in the market. The banks that are still originating, they're doing prime loans, jack, jumbos, and they keep them. They, they are not really selling them, but we'll see what happens with Basel. If Mike Barr doesn't back off on Basel, then I think that it could have a big negative impact on, on mortgages. And tell us what's coming with Basel. Basel III was a wide-ranging bank regulation enacted after the great financial crisis. What is the Basel endgame, as it calls? Tell us about what the, those proposals are. It's a, it's a strange witch's brew of, you know, policies that are really focused on capital for credit loss and a few things here and there to address Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other issues that came because of market risk. And that, remember, was caused by monetary policy. There's no other way to put it. It was uh, completely caused by the Fed going big in 2000, continuing that for two years when they should have eased up uh, probably six to nine months earlier. And so the impact of this on banks was very severe and on others too, remember. So there's parts of the economy that really took a hit during that two years of COVID. And since then, we've been kind of trying to put the pictures, pieces back together. But for the smaller banks, you know, remember they're main street lenders. So they're lending to people right in town, to the mall down the road, that sort of thing. And there is... You know, in some regards, they're better off than being in a large city. In other respects, they're not. Because, again, you know, the commercial stories are all different. So the, the smaller banks are going to, I think, unfortunately, take a bit of a shellacking for the next couple of years. I have not, you know, other than buying a little bit of Wells Fargo, I have not added to my bank common position. So I own New York Community pretty cheap. And then Wells Fargo. The rest is all preferreds. And that's because I think I can probably buy them cheaper this year, to be honest with you. Basel three banks have to raise uh, more capital. Uh, what, are, what are the other uh, policies? Well, they have to raise capital for strange things. So, for example, they're going to increase the risk weight on the mortgages we were just talking about. Most of those mortgages are guaranteed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They're conventional mortgages. And then the jumbos, 
if you look at the numbers, the loss rate on bank jumbo is very low. So there's a punitive increase in capital for multi for single family loans. There's a punitive increase in, in capital requirements for mortgage servicing assets. But then if you go over to the other side of the ledger, they're putting in place all of these strange charges for operational risk that have not been modeled, have not been shared with the community the way we've seen with past iterations of Basel. There's no prior art supporting some of these proposals. I think Mike Barr is going to have to make some changes. And I say that because it's pretty clear that Chairman Powell would not vote for the current proposal. He did support the rule when they published public comments on it. But I don't think he would vote for it. And there's probably at least two other governors who would vote no today. So my expectation is, and you know, Jim Gorman at Morgan Stanley said this as well, they're going to have to make some big changes. Because if they, if they don't back off on the, on the single family mortgages, then they're going to have a war with the entire housing complex led by the Mortgage Bankers Association. I don't know that the Fed needs that right now. I know they needed to do something after Silicon Valley Bank failed, Jack, obviously. But as I said in our comment letter, there are ways, elegant ways, that you could really make some important changes, and they missed this. And, you know, part of this is, uh, I hate to say it, but it's diplomacy. The Basel III Accord demonized housing assets in a way that we find really strange in this country, but it's common in Europe. In Europe, they don't have intangible assets on their balance sheets. In the United States, we have gain-on-sale accounting. We want to promote home ownership. We want to promote the capital markets. The Europeans don't. Explain what that means, Chris. What is gain-of-sale accounting, intangible assets, and, and mortgage servicing rights? Well, we, in this country, allow lenders to sell a loan and then essentially capitalize the servicing asset up front. So they basically say, well, I'm going to get all the income on this servicing asset, and they value it accordingly at the point of sale. So let's say I sell a loan into a securitization. I'm a little community bank, right? And I keep the servicing because I get paid 25 basis points a year for doing that. If you're taking care of a performing loan, it costs you four or five basis points. So that's 20 basis points of profit for the bank. And I can call that customer and refinance them down the road. So it's a wonderful asset for a bank. And yet the regulators, because Europeans hate intangible assets like mortgage servicing, like deferred tax assets, threw all of that under the bus, even though it's public policy in the United States to promote these activities. So the Fed is actually going contrary to the will of Congress when it comes to promoting housing, promoting housing finance. I mean, why did we have Fannie, Freddie, and Ginny sell securities? We should have just had a bank market. And the reality is you don't do that because you have much lower growth. That's why Europe has such horrible economic growth. They have throttled their capital markets, largely banks and government entities that control issuance in Europe. And, you know, they had a record quarter. That was great in terms of a new bond issuance. But you don't have the dynamism that the United States has because of our, our, our capital markets. That's why we've dug out from all these crises, Jack, bottom line. It's the hmm. U.S. bond market. And mortgage servicing rights increase in value as interest rates rise because... Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a fun story. I've been working on a biography of Stan Middleman, the founder of Freedom Mortgage, who's a dear friend. He's one of the smartest people I know. And Stan started off in the business in the 1990s, which was a tough time right after the SNL crisis. 
death and destruction. The mortgage market was basically on ice for 10 years. It was very similar to the period after 2008. So he created mortgage servicing assets with a cost, not even one times the annual cash flow from the servicing. Let's assume it's 25 basis points on the loan. But then he ended up selling those same assets for seven times cash flow when interest rates rose. So MSRs are a wonderful hedge, whether you're a bank or a non-bank. It's, it's one of the most misunderstood assets. And unfortunately, the regulators make policy based on those misunderstandings. Earlier, you said that mortgages, you have to put, raise capital against mortgages. Is that specifically on the credit side, not the interest rate risk or convexity risk side? Because yes. earlier, I know you, you think, yes. you think uh, you know, mortgage-backed securities, which are made up of mortgages, should have a higher risk weighting for interest rate. Yes. No, that's right. They are actually demonizing the mortgage note, which has a federal guarantee on it. Why do I care? You know, what we said in, in our comment letter is you should put the risk weight from 50% down to 20 for conventional loans because they reimburse all your expenses. They give you your money back after four months. So there's no risk there. The Ginnie Mae assets, you know, getting reimbursed by the FHA and the other agencies that guarantee that market is difficult and the expenses are higher. So we actually argued that the government insured market should have a higher risk weight. Yeah, than the conventional market. And then the real issue is mortgage-backed securities and whether the managers of banks understand these very complicated assets. You know, for example, we've had the big bond market rally you talked about before, the point in yield rally in the treasury market. Did mortgage-backed securities move a point in yield? No, it's called convexity. So in times when investors are unsure what's going to happen with interest rates, or they're unsure about the shape of the yield curve, they don't buy mortgage-backed securities, even when the treasury market is rallying. So it's a, it's a tough security to manage from a risk perspective. It is. And buying them in the spring of 2021 was definitely Bad not idea. Good. Well, they started in 19. That was, the, that was the extraordinary thing about Silicon Valley Bank. The regulators are standing there watching them. And these guys kept reinvesting all the payoffs in lower and lower coupon securities. They were literally shooting themselves in the head. It's quite something. We should make a movie. <laughs> we should. And Chris, <laughs> wasn't Silicon Valley Bank, it, w- it was not a truly, you know, globally systemically important bank, a, a GSIB. They got very large, but right before they failed, I think just over 200 billion, but less than 250 billion. Wasn't well, there, weren't, weren't they still considered a regional bank and therefore they, they didn't have a certain amount of uh, oversight that like, let's say JP Morgan has? Oh, uh, that's correct. But that's a, it, it's a really a misleading label. What the regulators ought to do is use the data that they have to characterize business models. And if you see somebody who's swinging for the fences with his available for sale securities at 40% of total assets, you need to go see them and have a conversation about just what it is they think they're doing because this, this was a monumental failure on the part of the Fed and the FDIC. I make no bones about that. And they have almost said that publicly. But to not pay attention to what business you're in, you know, like First Republic Bank, what business were they making mortgages? They didn't really make money on the rest of the bank, but they made a lot of money on gain on sale of jumbo mortgages that they were selling to Jamie Dimon and their friends at Redwood Trust. 
okay. But, you know, the regulators needed to understand that. And I don't think they did. I really don't. So you're, you're pretty bearish on the banks? I'm not bearish. Don't look for roses and sunshine this year. Mm-hmm. I think if the Fed goes forward with some sort of rate cut, say by June, maybe another quarter point before the end of the year, that's not going to help net income at banks. That's not going to help net interest income at banks. It will probably compress it more. And then funding costs are going to come down very slowly. So that's the mismatch I see, Jack. It's, it's, it's not like we wouldn't like to see a couple of rate cuts just to see the markets do better, or maybe get some volumes up on the mortgage side. But will that really help net income for the banks in 2000? No, I don't think so. But aren't the banks cheap now? No, not, not particularly. It depends what you define as cheap. You know, customer's bank at 1.1 times book? No, that's a decent valuation for that. should be higher. But people are still not willing to commit fully. You, you see, in December, when we were having this little rally, a lot of people came in and bought consumer-facing banks like Capital One, like Ally, like Customers. And okay, I understand why you did that trade, but it was a short-term trade. So now that we're here in, in 2024, and this whole narrative about the economy and everything is a bit muddled now, what's the driver that says, I want to be in consumer-facing banks? I'm not so sure. I think that was a little premature. And I think if I want to own financials now, I'm going to wait for the next down move. I may go shopping in the preferred aisle. And then maybe eventually I'll buy some common. I'd love to buy U.S. Bank at some point because I know that Cesar is going to get it together. You know, his internal target rate for efficiency is 61%. But their gap efficiency ratio was 76 because of the, the purchase of Union Bank. They've got to work off that, and it's going to take time. It could take the rest of the year. But my God, when the mortgage market starts uh, firing on maybe two cylinders, U.S. banks could be making money. You know, uh, they're, so they're, they're right behind Jamie, and there's no your, other banks in that group. Is your, is your neutral, you know, slightly pessimistic view on banks you know, based on that view of consumer credit? Because earlier I thought you said that consumer credit is fine. Right? Oh, no, I'm just saying credit costs overall are going to go up. Yeah. And it's going to be a commercial issue. It's not going to be like 2008. Now, will consumer default slowly rise? Yeah. After a long period of benign credit, as we've seen, it would not surprise me at all to see consumer default slowly go up. But I'm not looking for a big spike next quarter. It's not been the nature of things. It, it's very interesting that you know the banks are going to slowly work through the commercial. It could take four or five years. And they'll take their lumps as they go. They're all hoping that the economy is going to come back so it's easier to sell those assets. You know, it's like I've told my regulator friends and a number of people in the markets, it's hard to sell dead banks if interest rates are not falling, okay? You can't get the, you know, the room full if, if that's your objective. And I think the Fed is kind of looking over their shoulders, hoping that the economy doesn't really decelerate before they can start reducing the Fed funds target in a credible way. They don't want to do that now. They'd like to do that maybe in the third quarter if they can get that far. So let's see if they can get that far. One bank you've had your, your eye on for a while is uh, Bank of the, the Ozarks, ticker OZK. They're, they're pretty big commercial real estate. Yeah, what's your, what's your outlook on them, given that you have some concerns about commercial real estate? Well, George is a very astute manager of credit. He tends to like to be in the front of the process, that is to say development, construction lending. 
as opposed to mortgage lending on existing assets. So far, no problems. I mean, you know, everyone watches uh, Bank OZK for that reason. They know that this uh, little 20-something billion dollar institution that plays in the national commercial real estate market. So far, they've done very well. You know, he fell from grace a few years ago, but I got to say, OZK still delivers the bottom line results. There's no crisis there yet. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're not showing elevated levels of stress yet. And, and how is it that development building is can be, you know, as risky or less risky than building an existing building? Because I think, you know, a building, it, it has value. You can sell a building, whereas, you know, a half-built building is pretty hard to sell. Well, that's true. You have to evaluate the, the sponsor's ability to complete the project. That's why you demand cash, upfront equity. But think about it. If you're building a new facility that has a strong use case and you know, support in the community, they're going to go make money. Wouldn't you rather do the construction lending and then get out and then have it roll into a mortgage, You know, have some big REIT? That, to me, is, is a better position because you have less you know, risk over time. Why not because fund it? it at the because outside? it takes less time. You're saying, yeah. Okay, yeah. And and you're going to look at these really hard. You you want to make sure that you fully understand the use case for the facility, their funding, the whole bit. You're not going to bank somebody who's a fly by night. It's going to get you know halfway done. And so so what are some banks that have large commercial real estate exposures that you have your eye on that as we go through this cycle, you're you're going to be paying a lot of attention to them. Well, really. You know, if you go down below the top five and then go really the next 25 in terms of asset size, most of them have some degree of commercial exposure. The mainstream lenders, the truists, that sort of thing. You know, not so much a Schwab. They're in the advisory business. They, they basically don't have any loans. And there's several other specialty banks out there that you don't worry about. But you want to look at the main street lenders who obviously have to support their community because, you know, where else are they going to deploy their assets, right? So commercial historically, Jack, has been the gold standard for many of these banks because the assets only ever went up in price. They would they would fund them interest only and then roll them every seven years. And people don't realize, this is one of the reasons I, I spend a lot of time talking about commercial, what a big change this is when now the conversation isn't, well, I'm going to roll the asset for you. You can take some cash out. And I'll give you a better rate, right? Today, they want me to put cash in when I roll the mortgage because the value of the property is falling. That's a huge change in dynamics. And people are struggling with this. They really are. I've seen deals where they're coming to market with a below market coupon, but they're doing the deal at a discount, 10, 15 point discount on the face value of the paper. So, you know, there's a lot of creative solutions out there, but none of them are very good when the net income of the asset is falling and everybody's got to adjust accordingly. It's just the way it is. So figure 20, 30% haircuts on commercial real estate and underwritten by small community banks, just as your thumbnail. You want to be surprised on the upside, obviously, but it's very easy to search for these things. If you go uh, through the regulatory data, it's pretty easy to screen for them. There's a number of other services. You know, bank reg data is very good at this. So who is the, if, if George at, at OZK, you know, is doing a good job with his George underwriting. George Gleason. You're George Gleason, oh, yeah. Who, who is, you know, maybe has been a little more lax, not as stringent with commercial real estate lending where they've got in, into it and they've gotten into a big way and they've taken a lot of, a lot of risks. Are there any names that you know, come to your mind? 
No, it's hard to judge. You, you know, if you really want to get into this, what you have to do is read the 10 Qs and the 10 Ks. So for year end, you want to go through the 10K very carefully. You want to look at troubled debt restructurings. They're not going to tell you the name of the obligor, but you can get a sense for how big it is and, and what they're working on. And then, you know, for funds who trade distressed credit, they will actually go and get the tax docs and the other information on the asset. They'll find out who the lenders are and they'll short the stock. You know, it's very similar to the attack that was launched on Silicon Valley Bank. Everybody could see what they own and they could do the math, right? You own mortgage-backed securities. Well, guess what? You're losing money. <laughs> so they'll do the same thing here with these banks. You know, I, I'm not going to tick off any banks that are open for business because that's, uh, that's a bad or actually a good habit of mine from working as a regulator. We don't talk about banks that are still open, but if yeah. you're dead, we can talk about them all day long. Sounds good. And then you know, I, I did an interview on the collateralized loan obligation markets and other you know other non-bank financial lenders such as private credits. What is your outlook on on there? And I think you know 2023 is widely seen, I think, as a year where private credit kind of ate the banking system's lunch because the banking system was having all these problems. So private credit stepped in. Do you think that will continue in 2024 with private credit and CLOs? I think private credit has played an important role helping banks. You know, for example, when they take a commercial asset and they participate part of the upside from a restructuring. So they, they still own it. They haven't sold the loan, but they get a credit firm to come in and basically restructure it on balance sheet. Uh -huh. Gives them some cash. They go off and invest that cash at a higher yield to try and improve the yield on their book. You've seen a lot of the stronger banks, Jack, in, in this quarter's earnings, very definitely selling old paper from 2021, reinvesting it at higher rates because they've done the math and they know that this is something they have to do. And I expect to see more of that in the first quarter. It's going to be a gradual process where they're trying to raise the yield on their book. You know, look at customers. JC has got his yield up above the 7%. You know, you don't have to explain duration to him. But other bankers have been dragging their feet, and I worry about them because they, if they start facing credit risk from commercial properties and they've already got a deficit in terms of mark-to-market on their book, that's a very tough position for, for a bank to be in. So that's what I would look for. So are you referring to uh, banks selling the loan because it just is worth 90 cents because interest rates have risen? Or are you referring to kind of yeah. right in, you know, similar to a credit default swap, but a credit linked note where they offload well, the risk? Different things. Let's yeah. say I have a note, you know, that's got some delinquency issues, a commercial property. I bring in a credit fund. They take some of the exposure for me and end up giving me cash. But obviously they think it's got potential upside in a restructuring, and they're going to participate in that. The second thing we were talking about is when I'm just sitting there, I'm the treasurer of the bank, I look at my portfolio and I say to myself, well, unfortunately, I kept some of these Fannie Mae threes and three and a halves. The Fed rally has gotten these securities back up to about 90 cents on the dollar. Maybe I'm going to sell them this quarter uh -huh. and just take the net proceeds at 90 cents and go out and buy some Fannie Mae sixes. Okay, that's the basic trade. And the math works. You've seen a lot of banks do this if you go through their financials. And they're the, they're the survivors, the ones who can reposition themselves and increase their yield are going to be able to survive, I think, in a much better fashion. 
Chris, l- like many, I've been paying attention to the you know news of what appear to be quite brutal layoffs at at Citigroup. I think nineteen thousand people laid off. But you know, you mm-hmm. have been paying very close attention to this. Do you think that will you know the the Citibank can can emerge as a stronger institution after this? And they've also been you know letting go of departments that you know, like the municipal bond trading department that it pretty mm-hmm. much was the same thing from Solomon Brothers. I mean, so Jane, CEO, she's she's letting go of a, of a lot of... The ultimate, I think, challenge that Jane Frazier has is that City is a two-legged stool. They don't have an asset management business. They sold Smith Barney to Morgan Stanley. And that was a very, very important transaction for both firms. But I think it left City weak. So today they've got a payments business probably the most valuable asset they have. They have the consumer lending business, which makes money. And then they have a capital markets business, which is no longer a leader. I think cities either got to merge with another institution or they should look at just selling the assets and liquidating the bank. I, you know, They cannot answer the basic question, why is this bank here? Who does this bank serve? Why are we going to be able to deliver value to shareholders? Because remember, Shareholders since 2008 have lost 95% of the value of city. Why shouldn't we just end the misery now and sell the assets? I think you'd do better. You know, the, the bank's trading at half a book. I think you could get well above book value if you liquidated the pieces. So I know Mike Mayo is very bullish on city. Are you? Well, only in a liquidation scenario. I, I love Mayo. He's a former colleague, and I think he's wrong. I think, you know, we've been watching the restructuring of City for 50 years, my entire professional career, okay? I used to work with these people when I was at the Fed in New York. In the 80s, they were special. They were the market leader. They were the bad boys. But you know what they did? They just grafted non-bank finance onto the bank. And they ended up losing a lot of money. They ended up failing and going into a government conservatorship. So to me, I think the story is over. I really think it's time to just sell the assets to stronger hands. And you know what? If it wasn't for the Bank Holding Company Act and Fed regulation, City would have already been taken over years ago. With the bank trading below book, yeah. It, it would have been taken over, but uh, com- there are competitive concerns. Anti-competitive the Fed's concerns. not very good at, at dealing with underperformers. They like to merge them together so that they don't fail. But this is a case where I think we ought to just take the pieces apart and sell them. Chris, so you're not terribly bullish on on the banks. I think that's an, an understatement. What would it take for you to become constructive on the banking sector? And you can move whatever dials you want. You know, I you, you're like a producer in a recording studio, and any dials you want in terms of what the Fed's balance sheet is, where are interest rates, what the curve is like, what are delinquencies, and you know, return on equity, anything. What's it going to take? Well, first and foremost, the Treasury and Congress would have to announce an accord to start cutting the budget deficit substantially, even if it meant raising revenue. I think that's going to happen eventually. So if you want to make a financial environment that is not punitive to banks and to other leveraged investors, that's really first thing. The treasury is the dominant factor in the marketplace. Second would be Basel. We need to get through this rulemaking and not do really stupid and pointless things. I would like to see them have a more nuanced approach to market risk. And basically, credit risk is not an issue right now. I think the existing regulation is fine. And then let's normalize the yield curve and try and have as little volatility as we can on rates. 
And this goes back to, you know, three cuts, six cuts, whatever people say this year, right? What we need is less volatility. So if I'm the Fed chairman, I would like to remember that third mandate in Humphrey Hawkins, which is stable long-term interest rates. I think that would be very helpful to banks. Because, you know, they're not made for volatility of this type in a period of three, four, five years. Definitely not. Chris, th- thanks for coming on and sharing your views. People should check out your, your bank book, which people can find on your, your, yes. your Twitter, which we'll, we'll link in the description. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com slash motefg to learn more about the Vanek Morningstar Wide Moat ETF, ticker MOAT. Lastly, Forward Guidance is available not just on YouTube, but on all podcast apps. And a video version is available on Spotify and Twitter, where I post interviews regularly. Thanks again. Until next time.